Whoever you are, wherever you are, whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the Labyrinth, the Labyrinthine, St. Vran River, and almost sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Ben Kalb, and across the table is the only co-host who always fills out perfect NCAA March Madness brackets. She's Becky Peters. Becky, what's good? It's all good, Ben. I'm feeling super lucky to be bringing Giants in Education to the earbuds of busy teachers everywhere. And man, do we have a giant today. He's Cal Newport, the author of a number of critically acclaimed books and New York Times bestsellers. And his most recent book that he's going to talk to us about today is called Digital Minimalism, which is on the bestseller list for New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Publisher Weekly, and USA Today, and I'm sure a few more. You'll see why as we get into the content. But today, he's going to talk to us about the importance of using technology technology with intention and being super clear about the role that it plays in our lives so that we don't let it take over our lives. That's spot on, Becky. I think the essential question from Cal Newport is how do we get big wins with our technology? Um, and I, we're just coming off our spring break. And I think over spring break, I made five different trips to Super Target. And it hit me during one of those trips to Super Target that we have this ubiquitous access to any type of food we could possibly imagine, even food that doesn't grow in our region. And that in a five-minute trip to Super Target, I get what would have taken me years to be in the fields raising these crops or raising cattle. And I think most of us would agree that it's a pretty good thing that we don't have to spend our time farming and instead we can be teaching kids. But it, it reminded me of when I taught U.S. history. One of my students' favorite books was a book by a man named Upton Sinclair called The Jungle. And when this technology first came out that enabled us to not have to spend time farming that really the second industrial revolution, we didn't really get it right. And so this book follows the meatpacking industry in Chicago. And he found that there was rotten meat being served to people, that there was rat poison in our meat, that the living conditions for the immigrants was just horrendous. And so anytime we have new technology, there's also like some real the real positive things like we see with my trip to Super Target, but there's some negative things, some safeguards we need to, to keep in place. And so to me, this book by Cal Newport is kind of like the jungle for our day, that there are some amazing things with technology and our smartphones that we have. But we also need to be really weary of what is the rat poison of distraction in our minds. And so I can't wait to uh, get this interview to you. So without further ado, here he is. But one of the things I'd, I'd love to start with is just kind of the the overall thesis of your most recent book, Digital Minimalism. Uh, the one line that I almost fell out of my chair, I think it's on like page two, but it said, the urge to check Twitter or refresh Reddit becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time into shards too small to support the presence necessary for an intentional life. That's just, it's so intense. And I'm curious about how you started researching this or how you ar arrived at this conclusion and what prompted you to explore this idea. It was really feedback from my readers, actually. So but for this book, I had published a book back in 2016 that was called Deep Work, which really was about some of the unintentional consequences of technology in the workplace. So what was happening to our workplace productivity in a world of email and Slack and, and constant distraction. And it was after that book came out that I began hearing from readers who were saying, okay, maybe I buy that premise, but what's bothering me even more, what seems even more important is what's happening, the unintentional consequences in our personal life of these new technologies. And so as I looked deeper into this issue, what is the source of this unease that I kept picking up that people were feeling about what was happening in their life outside of work with these tools? What became clear is that there was this growing sense that people's autonomy was being diminished. 
that they were looking at these screens so much more than they know is useful, so much more than they know is helpful, to the exclusion of things that they knew were more important, that it began to seem as if almost their humanity itself was starting to take a hit. And so as I picked up that thread in our current cultural experience, I decided this is something that that I need to write about. So it's sort of a continuation then, as you see it, of the deep work premises, uh, and that applies more to professional, and then this is more about personal? Yeah. So it it seemed similar, but it turned out that the forces were quite different. So what, what's happening in the professional workplace is interesting, but somewhat distinct from what's happening in our personal life. So in the professional context, the issue that's happening has a lot to do with the way we've evolved our workflows in an age of low friction digital communication. And so we've sort of uh, created these emergent workflows that are based on constant ad hoc communication, which has certain advantages. It's flexible, it's convenient, but it's making it really hard for people to actually use their brain to create value, which is sort of the main thing that you're supposed to do in the knowledge economy. Uh, In people's personal lives, it, it was different. So what seems to be happening in people's personal lives is that the tools themselves were explicitly engineered over time to foster more compulsive use. They're explicitly engineered to be addictive. And so people who signed up for a service or downloaded an app for some innocent reason 10 years ago were looking up last year and saying, why am I looking at this thing six hours a day? What's going on here? Why didn't sign up for this? And so the, the end result looks a little bit similar. The forces are quite different. So you say explicitly engineered. Can you talk to us a little more about that? Well, this is something a lot of people don't remember, but in the early days of consumer smartphones and social media, the idea that you would look at your phone all the time didn't exist, right? We think about today, like this is fundamental. Of course, if you have a smartphone and it's connected to the internet that you're going to look at it all the time, but this really didn't exist in, let's say, 2007 to 2012. Uh, We had smartphones, we had social media, but they were more like tools. Facebook was something where you would post things, your friends would post things. Occasionally, you would go on to see what they were up to. Your phone is something that you would use to listen to music or make calls or to look up directions, but it wasn't something you you looked at six hours a day or that you checked 200 times a day. This all changed right around the time that Facebook, they're really the leaders on this, realized that they had to get their revenue numbers up if they were going to succeed with the IPO that they were they were hoping to do. So their early stage investors wanted this huge return on their investment. So they wanted a big splashy IPO, but they had to get their revenue numbers up to succeed with that. And so the plan they hatched was that they were going to fundamentally re-engineer the social media experience in two ways. One, they really shifted it to mobile off of the desktop. And two, they shifted it away from uh, you post things and your friend post things into this constant intermittent incoming stream of social approval indicators. Mm. And so this was the rise of things that seem fundamental now, but were, were added kind of late into the game, like the like button or auto tagging in photos or favorites or retweets. These numbers, these indicators that someone approves of you, someone is thinking of you that are coming at you all day, this is what changed our experience with social media from something you occasionally checked into something that you look at constantly. And this was intentional. This was essentially the business plan hatched by Facebook and then eventually co-opted by lots of other social media platforms to somehow convince us to do something that at the time seemed really exceptional. How can we get people to pick up their phone 200 times a day? No one was doing that. They re-engineered the experience to be addictive. Now almost everyone does. Yeah, infinite scroll, all of those features that we are so used to now get our eyes glued to it more so they can expose us to more advertisements, right? So I loved how you talked about, I'm a huge fan of Steve uh, Chiabs, I believe his name is pronounced. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you talk about how this isn't the phone Steve Jobs actually 
really envisioned. Can you talk to us about that? Well, Jobs was a minimalist, which means he was all about taking things that people really loved and then making those experiences even more magical. And so I went back and talked to the original design lead for the original iPhone launch back in 2007. And the way he explained it to me is that the idea behind the original iPhone was that it was going to take two things that people really loved to do already and make the experiences even better, which was listening to music and making phone calls. And so it was a really good iPod because it had this touchscreen. And it was a really good phone because Steve Jobs somehow convinced AT&T to allow them to sort of open up their systems and and build like a visual voicemail. And you could scroll through the numbers by flicking your fingers. And you only needed the, the digits on the screen when you were dialing. They didn't have to take up real estate all the time. And if you go back and look at Steve Jobs' keynote in 2007, where he introduces the iPhone, that's what he spends about 30 minutes talking about. The first 30 minutes are... Look at these iPod pod features, best iPod we've ever made. Look at these phone features. Uh, making phone calls is the killer app. That was his line. And we've merged these both into one sort of beautiful device. So it was this minimalist idea of let's take things you love and make the experiences even better. There's no app store. There's no notion that this was supposed to change your behavior. There's no notion that our goal for this phone is that you look at it all the time. That completely was not on Steve Jobs' radar. That's something that was really pushed by the social media companies. And it was really like five or six years after that, that we began to change our relationship to these devices in that way. One one of my favorite commercials that I play in some trainings with teachers is a This We Believe, and it's the first iPad commercial. And it's this epic voiceover. And it's like, This We Believe, technology alone is not enough. And when technology gets out of the way, and you look at that in context or comparison to today, when technology tries to get in the way, you're getting dings and buzzes, right? And how different that is. Well, I mean, Jobs was never very comfortable with this attention economy model, which which is in part why Google ended up creating a competitor operating system for iOS. They, they, they created Android because they were really happy with the idea of trying to monetize people's attention, and they wanted to control the operating system that that helped them do that. But Apple was always a little bit suspicious about this, which is why I think in part that they've really led the way recently in adding these screen time features to iOS, you know, making it easier for you to see how much you're using your phone, automatically telling you, hey, you've looked mm-hmm. at your phone this many hours this week, giving you tools that allow you to limit uses of applications. To me, that's the, the Jobsian ethic that I think has remained down there in Cupertino, even after his death. And that's why I think Apple is doing something a little bit different than the, the rest of the sort of attention economy conglomerates. Hmm. And I think that's important, like something to underscore that the because a lot of people I think listening are like, well, that's not me. That's not me. But the average modern user is on social media for two hours every day, right? And the one of the interviews that you talk about in the book too with Tristan Harris really likens the the phone now and all of these different things to slot machines, that it's it's that addictive and that difficult to put down. And I think part of it is that people need like so much permission to put their phone down. Like some people see it as an impossibility, something enviable that only other people can do. Why Why do you see that people insist that it's so hard for them to make that change in their own lives? Well, it's, it's crazy how quickly our culture has shifted on that. So so yeah, people have this fear. Of, if, if I don't have my phone with me, if I'm not on social media, all these bad things are going to happen. And you have to step back and say, well, this is like eight years old. I mean, it's not, it's not like we're talking about giving up electricity or the internal combustion engine. I mean, you go back eight years and you you weren't you weren't on social media probably, or if you were, you barely used it. You you maybe had a smartphone, but it was something that you used occasionally. I mean, we're not we're not talking about scary territory, but it kind of seems that way 
right now. And it, it's a little bit hard to, to untangle exactly what's going on. Partially, I think there's a maximalist mindset that's really endemic right now, where people think about things they might miss out on. And imagine that that's like value that someone's taking from them. Mm-hmm. And so sort of this natural loss aversion. So they think, well, you know, if I'm not on Twitter, I might miss this. And that would be valuable to me. So it's almost like someone's taking that value from me. I don't want people to take value from me. I don't want to lose value. I might as well just keep this just in case, right? And so we end up cluttering our digital lives the same way that we clutter our closets with all this old clothes, each of which we have some story for. Like, well, you never know. One day I might need that pair of shoes or that old shirt might be useful if I paint the house. And then our closet is completely overflowing and it stresses us out. But it's overflowing because we have this little explanation for every little thing. I think that's really what's happening in our digital lives right now. We have little stories for everything that's in there, but we're missing the bigger picture that the overall impact of all this clutter is that it's making us miserable. So then let's jump into it. How do you describe digital minimalism as uh, like a definition or an elevator speech? Well, so minimalism is an old philosophy. I mean, you could you can trace it all the way back to Marcus Aurelius. Thoreau talks about it. It's what Mary Kondo is applying to people's physical clutter. I mean, it's an idea that's been around a long time and can apply to many different parts of the human experience. And the basic idea of minimalism is that usually you're better off focusing your energy on things that are really valuable to you to the exclusion of other things that maybe are valuable, but a lot less valuable. So focus on the big wins and don't waste energy on the small wins. That's basically what minimalism is. So if you apply that to your closet, for example, that means only keep the clothes that spark joy, right? So if you Mm -hmm. apply that to your phone, what that means is only keep the online tools that give you a significant boost to things you really care about and then miss out on everything else. That by focusing your attention on the things that are really valuable and not spreading it thin among these little small value things, you'll end up better off. And I was just so shocked to to read in your book. And, and like I think we will say in the intro, this is the most important book that I've read all year, and I couldn't recommend it anymore. Um, I'm surprised my wife isn't walking down the stairs to personally thank you because it, it's changed how I live. Can you talk to us as you're looking through your phone? What is your advice as far as what to keep and what to get rid of? So the process I recommend is to actually take a month. And I think you actually need a month for a couple of reasons. But the, the process I recommend, I call it the digital declutter. And what you do is at the beginning of the month in which you do this, you essentially step away from any optional technology in your personal life. So any of the tech that you can stop using for a month without it causing major problems. So for most people, this will be social media, online news, games, these type of things. Uh, So you you step away from these technologies in your personal life for a month. During that month, in addition to getting a sort of detox effect, you know, a a reducing of that compulsive urge to look at a phone, you should spend this time trying to get back in touch with what do you value? What do you care about? What do you actually want to spend your time outside of work doing? Once that month is over, you then step back and say, I'm only going to add back into my digital life tools that give me a really big win on one of these small number of things identified as being very important. And so it's like you're starting from scratch. You're clearing out the proverbial closet and only putting back in things that are really important to you. That looks different for different people, right? And so what I end up with on my phone after I become a digital minimalist is going to look different than what 
you have on your phones can look different than what an artist has on their phones can look different than what let's say an online personality is going to have on their phone. There is no particular good or bad technology, but there is a good and bad approach to technology. And so this declutter process is basically a way of starting from scratch and saying, let me rebuild my digital toolkit, but this time let me do it with some intention. Yeah. I I think the intention is the important part of it there. And I, I, I think we'd be remiss to ask or to not ask what exists on your phone after your month of digital minimalism? Well, so I've been a longtime digital minimalist, which means uh, even long before I wrote this book, I've, I've been very wary about which technologies have led into my life. I only want big wins. So you know, one of the, the big defining features of my digital life is I, I have no social media accounts. And that turns out to really reduce the amount of time you, you spend looking at screens once you, once you get that out of their life. It's not that I don't think there would be some benefits to me, but there's no benefits that are huge. And I'm looking for the big wins. Um, and so I don't use my phone that much outside of doing the original tool stuff, you know, phone calls and text messages, looking up directions, listening to podcast or music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spend long periods of my day without it with me, right? It's a tool I use sometimes. It's not a constant companion. And so that's where I ended up when I did that digital minimalism declutter. Again, though, other people end up in different places. So when I ran this experiment where I had 1,600 people go through this process, for example, about 50% of them, at least of those who sent me reports, about 50% of them got rid of all social media. And about 50% kept social media of some form in their life. If that gives you some sense of the sort of variety of different outcomes people end up with once they go through this process for themselves. How different do you think it is for, I mean, out of those 1600 people, were, were some of them uh, adolescents, like school age, most of our listeners are K-12. So I'm just curious about if you think that that 30 days is harder or any different, if you would recommend it any different for adolescents, uh, since their brains are, you know, developmentally different than ours. Well, certainly age mattered. So young people, that is people who had access to ubiquitous internet and smartphones starting from a young age they often struggled with the 30-day process because day one, they would say, what am I supposed to do? Right? They had no prior experience of this is how I used to spend my time. For people who are a little bit older, like my age or older, who went through, let's say, adolescence and college and some of their adult life, perhaps, in a pre-smartphone era, it was more of a rediscovery process. Oh, yeah, these were the things I used to do with my time that I found valuable. It's kind of nice to rediscover them. But if you don't have that to go back to, uh, it can be quite scary. Now, if you're an adolescent, let's say you're you're 15, 16 years old or even younger, I have a couple words of warning. One, social media is very dangerous. Very, It's dangerous at, at your age. This is a time in which your brain is very attuned to social interaction dynamics. That's part of the actual process of becoming an adult. The way that digital interaction on social media sort of co-ops these social instincts is something that we can see in the statistical research and you can probably see in your own daily life can be very distressing. It can be really negative uh, for your social health. And if you're uh, a young man, just looking at the, the literature as well, be very wary of video games because these have become increasingly addictive. They've been engineered to be that way. And so for adolescents, I think there needs to be a sort of particular care about what you're doing with your digital life. I know it's incredibly difficult. And I know these issues are very difficult. There's there's probably no harder thing to do, perhaps, if you're, let's say, a 15-year-old to say, I don't use Snapchat anymore. But I really want to plant this seed. I really want to plant this seed that 
maybe one of the most important things you could do for your mental health as an adolescent is figuring out how you could disentangle your, say, sociality from social media or how you could disentangle your leisure time from highly addictive video games. And another follow-up to that, then part of this, uh, I imagine, is for parents too, really good and strong modeling for people that are even younger. I mean, my kids are three and five and they see my husband and I on our phones all the time. Like, what is that doing to them? Yeah, modeling is key. I mean, I'm definitely getting this message from the, the parents I've been talking to. You, if you're not modeling good habits with these devices, it's very difficult to try to instill that in your kids. So something that's quite common among these parents, for example, is that the phone stays near the front door. Right? You come home from work, the phone's near the front door. If you need it, you go in there, you look something up by the front door in the foyer, and then you come back. It's not with you in the house outside of work. So even something as simple as that, which just shows, yeah, the phone is a tool you occasionally use, not something that you have with you as a constant companion. Just letting your kids see that. What I'm discovering out there on the road is that this itself can be very powerful. And the other message I want to give is that I got to tell you, the kids out there today that don't use social media and they don't use video games, when they reapply that energy, man, they end up really interesting people. And so I, I want to plant that carrot out there to see if that might entice some people. So you said you've been a digital minimalist for a while. Have you noticed a change in kind of the the reaction that you get? I mean, my mother-in-law, and I'll, I'm not afraid to admit I'm wrong, she has been saying this stuff to me about phones being bad and mental health and social media for like five years. And I used to think she was just straight up crazy <laughs> and there was conspiracy theory. And now you hear like the NBA commissioner came out and said that he's seriously concerned about his athletes' mental health and no one in the NBA is happy. They all want trades because they live their life with noise canceling headphones on social media. So have you noticed a shift and why do you think that is and how this is accepted? I definitely noticed a shift and it seems to have started about two years ago. You know, so as someone who's been an outspoken uh, critic of some of these technologies for years and years, I'm kind of a good test subject to see how reactions change. And so at some point in late 2016, early 2017, I noticed that these reactions to, to my type of writing shifted from incredulity into empathy. So it used to be people thought I was crazy. They, they thought the fact that I didn't use social media was somehow antisocial, hmm. right? that I was a weirdo, right? That this, this was kind of strange. I remember in 2016, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times where I was saying something about young people, shouldn't, spending time on social media was not going to help young people in their careers, and that this was actually probably a waste of their time. It, it was such a controversy that the New York Times actually commissioned a response op-ed column. Wow. Like, they went out and commissioned an op-ed column just to contradict my op-ed, which is something they don't normally do. But that's how that's the fear. I don't get that anymore. And so there's been a shift. I, you know, in the last couple of years, there's, there's, there's a couple of different reasons why this might be true. People have shifted, and they no longer see these technologies as fundamental. They're they're now willing to accept that there could be flaws with them. People are being more introspective about what they want to do with their life, and it's really like night and day. Which is in part why I'm writing this book now, is that I think. Two and a half years ago, if this book came out, it would still be seen as eccentric. It comes out today, and it's like I'm preaching to a choir. People are ready for this message at this point in a way they weren't even in the recent past. I, I want to hear you talk a little bit too about the, um, you said that when 
people heard you word on social media that they think you're antisocial and that 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 seeming paradox like how we can feel more lonely when we spend so much time on social media and the difference between like connections and conversations can you talk a little bit about the differences there and how they're they're really fundamentally different than having like a thousand friends online versus one face-to-face conversation this is one of these confusing findings that kept coming up in the psychology literature which was for whatever reason increased social media use kept being correlated with more loneliness or less sociality or less social well-being. And finally, the best explanation that the psychologists could come up with for trying to understand this trend is that what seems to be happening is something called social snacking, which is you're replacing rich social interactions. So in person or on the phone, these sort of analog interactions where there's back and forth and you can hear each other's voice and the tone of the voice and there's pacing and and this type of rich interactivity that we've evolved to crave. People were replacing that with a quick text message or a comment on social media or a like. Your friend had a baby and instead of taking an hour or two out of your day to go over there and to bring a gift box and to be helpful or, or clean their dishes or see the new baby, you just say congrats with three exclamation points under the Instagram post. And so this social snacking was making people more lonely, not because the actual action of using social media makes you lonely, but because it was replacing the stuff that we crave. And so when you replace the rich meal, the type of analog interaction we've done for all of human history with this small digital snack, net-net, you end up feeling much more lonely. Some part of your brain thinks you're being very social because like, hey, I've been, quote unquote, interacting with friends all day long on my screen. But for the deeper parts of your brain, it thinks I haven't talked to anyone in ages because it doesn't know that that counter next to the thumb under a Facebook post is you know people giving you social approval. The deep part of your social brain is saying, I haven't seen a face or heard someone else's voice in a long time. I'm starting to feel pretty lonely. So if we are to kind of transfer this conversation now to teaching and knowing that the people listening are in charge of the well-being of the future of this country. One of the things you say in deep work is that focus is the new IQ. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that? And then we'll talk about some more implications for teachers in digital minimalism. So as we shift increasingly into a competitive knowledge work economy, one of the most fundamental skills that we have is the ability to concentrate without distraction. This is fundamentally what you need to do to succeed in sort of a high level knowledge work type job. Concentration is what allows you to learn complicated things quickly. Concentration allows you to produce high quality cognitive output at a fast rate. And so it's becoming one of these core skills for the type of work that we increasingly do in this economy. And sort of the main point of that that book, Deep Work, is that at the same time that this skill is becoming more valuable, we're getting worse at it. Sort of unintentionally, but due to technological innovations, distracting technological innovations, we are getting worse at concentrating at exactly the same time that it's becoming more important. And this has a lot of ramifications. So as we're thinking about tools then, right, we know we need we need students to be able to do deep focus. We need to be able to do deep focus. In digital minimalism, you say, start with the value, look at the things on your phone, and is that value best represented with that tool? So I started Facebook because I care about friendships. Is five hours a week scrolling through Facebook the best way to enhance that value of friendship? Absolutely not. What would the question be for teachers then as they're thinking about using technology in class? Right. I, I mean, I think this this is a really important question, right? So if we're, if we're trying to work backwards from a couple key goals, which is sort of subject area, so 
do the students know how to do X, Y? And then more generally, are the students comfortable with sustained cognitive work, deep thinking? Can they sustain concentration on something hard? Can they pick up something new? Can they apply concentration to produce high-level cognitive output? I mean, these two things, I think, are really important. And so if you ask this question right, I think one of the answers you come up with is trying to, for example, just seed to our current culture that, well, kids are kind of distracted and connected. So let's just step back and that's the way that we'll teach kids. Like, let's bring in more ed tech. Let's make things more fragmented. Let's do like a YouTube video instead of an old school book report. That's probably counterproductive. If we step back and say we have these two goals, A, learning particular material, but two, building a mind that is comfortable and capable of intense concentration, I think that completely changes the way you think about what's important and what's not important in the classroom. I mean, there's a reason, for example, why for whatever it is the past 500 years, education, the idea of education sort of in the world has been based in part on the careful study of codexes, the careful study of books, because grappling with the complex written word turns out to be like calisthenics training for the ability of a mind to think deeply. And the ability of a mind to think deeply is where all of the sort of innovations that have transformed human civilization from the enlightenment forward, that's where it all came from. That's the skill that allowed us to do that. And so, you know, maybe something seems old fashioned. Uh, I can't believe we're still looking at books. Doesn't that seem old fashioned? I see it the other way. Can you believe after all of these years and all of these different disruptions, we still are looking at books? Wow, that must be like a great technology. There must be something really fundamental to this idea of sitting there and grappling with hard ideas uh, in the written word. And so when I ask these questions sort of informally, when I'm thinking about my own teaching as a professor, for example, I come back to these somewhat old-fashioned type answers that there's certain basic behaviors that teach a brain how to be a brain. And we need to be very careful about blithely uh, disrupting or playing with these things just because the latest wave of technological innovation somehow seems shiny. I think of my exposure to your work and the only actual physical time I've been exposed to your ideas was this book um, was the only physical copy I had. The other one were both audio books, both um, so good. You, they can't ignore you and deep work. And so I wonder, do you think there's something valuable about the actual physical reading the words or can it this exposure to the codex, as you say, be digital through audio? Yeah, this is this is an interesting debate that's going on. So one of the things that's been really interesting in the world of technology has been the surprising rise in popularity of sort of long form intellectual podcast. So there's been this explosion of people who are willing to sit down and listen to like a three hour interview with a professor, for example. And one of the ideas behind why this is is happening is that, you know, People do have sort of a craving for complex ideas, but for some people, they don't have the time to sort of sit down and engage with the physical codex, or some people might just be uncomfortable, just uncomfortable with with, uh, grappling with the written word. And so these arguments have actually been a little bit compelling to me. I think what's happening with audio is actually something that we should pay attention to. And so I think the codex is a fundamental technology, but I think probably what's more fundamental it's just this general notion of grappling with complex thought. So how does how does this what we've been talking about for the past few minutes? How does this translate into your pedagogy? You're a, you're a professor of computer science, right, at Georgetown? Do you have classes that you teach regularly, or are you mostly doing yeah. research? Okay, yeah, no, so I then, teach. Yeah how does how does this translate into your into your own specific pedagogy when you're doing classes? I mean, do your students use tech tools for things, or I mean, do you not? 
advocate for that and and spend more time in reflection and discussion? I mean, how does that look? Well, so I'm a theoretical computer scientist, which means the the courses I teach are primarily mathematical. So uh, some computer science has an explicit technological component because you're literally learning about that technology. And so it would be uh, difficult to, you know, remove a computer from the equation, for example, when you're learning techniques that involve you actually programming a computer. But what I do, which is more like algorithms and theory and discrete mathematics, doesn't explicitly require uh, technology. And I've experimented some. I've, I've watched a lot of other types of experimentation that other people have done. And something that catches my attention is that there seems to be some sort of fundamental value in the in-person lecture. And it, it's hard to put our fingers on on why it is. And there, there's been this, this these thoughts of disruption. Well, it, this is really inefficient. Uh, I know it's, it's popular at education conferences to, to put up a slide from, you know, 1940s of a classroom and say, this looks exactly the same as our classroom today. Like, isn't that crazy? Why have we not changed this? But actually, we've been kind of doing the in-person lecture for 500 years. And I don't know what it is about it, but something about being able to see your students, look at their faces, they can see you, you can kind of adjust your pacing based on whether you see they're maybe not following what you're saying, that people can ask questions, there's this back and forth, that you're, that you're explaining things there in an embodied presence. Something about that I've noticed seems to work well. Well, you tell yeah. an awesome story about uh, the weirdest sport ever on ESPN, and what does that tell us about how much richer the human presence is than we even give it credit for. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I found these old videos from, I guess it probably wasn't ESPN 1. It was probably like ESPN 9. <laughs> the Ocho. <laughs> the ESPN Ocho. Ocho. Yeah, probably. Yes. probably <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, uh, there used to be a professional rock, paper, scissors league, which seems kind of absurd because you would assume like, well, why don't you just do this randomly? And so it would just be random who wins, but it turns out you can be good at rock, paper, scissors. And we know this in part because the same people kept coming up really high in the tournament rankings back when there was a professional league. So the same quote unquote good players would do really well again and again in the tournaments. Then you can find videos of these professionals playing against people off the street and they would just win again and again. And so, so what's happening there? Well, we have in our brain, um, this incredibly complex social computer. You know, it's one of the secrets to our species success is that we can do this thing, which other animals cannot do nearly as well as we can, which is monitor and navigate social dynamics. I can look at your facial expression, your body, uh, your body language. I can do something called mentalizing where I actually simulate your mind within my mind so that I can test how you'll react to different things before I say it. And this allows us to actually uh, come together as a band of people and work together to do complex things, which is really crucial to our survival and a huge amount of our neuronal power or processing power is actually dedicated to this act. And so these professional rock, paper, scissors players are just practiced. They're really, really good at some of these social skills like mind reading in particular. So trying to understand like how you're thinking, if I just did this, you're probably going to play this, but that means I'll play this, but you know that. So maybe I'll then play this. Like they do this tertiary sort of back and forth mental simulation. They're, they're, they're pretty good at it. Uh, and trying to like understand other human minds. But stepping back, I think the the underlying observation here that's so interesting is we are really good at in-person analog social interaction and social dynamics that 
there's something about that that our systems are optimized to deal with. And so as soon as you start trying to uh, virtualize or otherwise manipulate or change the age-old experience of I'm here, you're here, we're interacting, weird things start to happen. We have unexpected consequences. We are fundamentally a social animal, like Aristotle wrote. That's a neuronal truth. But it's a neuronal truth that assumes that people are going to be next to each other, that they're going to be mm-hmm. in the same physical space. God, that's fascinating. We're like voluntarily giving it up on a regular basis. And and that's what's curious to me too. I, I really enjoyed the reading the part about solitude and how important that is too. And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about solitude deprivation and why we should be concerned about that. So we should get the right definition. So the definition of solitude that I was using this book comes from another book called Lead Yourself First, which was which is really about leadership and, and solitude. But the definition they gave, which I found really helpful, was solitude is freedom from inputs from other minds. And so it has nothing to do with physical isolation. It's about is your mind processing something that came from another mind, or is it alone with its own thoughts and just sort of observing the world around you? And so if you're on the very top of a mountain and there's no one within a hundred miles and is silent but you have earbuds in. You're not in a state of solitude. Well, on the other hand, you can be in a crowded subway car, but if it's just sort of you looking around and thinking, you are in a state of solitude, right? So it's a neuronal condition. Is your brain in input processing mode? You know, I'm processing input from another mind, or is it in a different default mode? We have a lot of reason to believe that regularly having solitude in your life is just crucial for all sorts of proper functioning of the human mind. I mean, there's low-level maintenance benefits this gives us. Like, the, It's all hands on deck when your mind is processing input from another mind because as we just talked about, we're incredibly social. Our brains take that very uh, importantly. They don't know that the thing you're reading online is trivial. It just, as far as your mind is concerned, hey, this is something that another mind produced, all hands on deck. We have to analyze it. So if you're always in that mode, it's exhausting for your brain. It has psychological side effects, most most notably anxiety. Um, but we also know that time alone with your own thoughts is how insight happens and personal growth happens. That if you don't give your mind time to actually grapple with what's going on in your life, to grapple with information that it earlier took in, to sort of grapple with just random observations, it's very difficult to have insights. It's very difficult for personal development to happen. And so solitude is like a nutriment for human flourishing. You, you don't want to have it all the time. That'll make you lonely and miserable. But you certainly don't want to banish it from your life because that also is going to make you sort of anxious and sort of in a state of low insight and low personal growth. And so what recommendations then would you have for public education or for education, I guess, as a whole, as we're raising young people in these systems? Like, how do we help them understand the value of and even ourselves model that value of, of the not having input from other minds? Well, you know, it used to be until recently that it would be incredibly difficult to ban a solitude from your life because it just happened naturally. I mean, just through the course of your day, you were going to have regular moments where you were just alone with your own thoughts. That was almost impossible to avoid through most of human history. It's only in the last 10 years with the innovation of smartphones, ubiquitous high-speed wireless internet, and these algorithmically optimized sources of entertainment that we're experimenting for the first time with the possibility of I can banish all solitude. And so what's happening is not great. So if we look at young people in particular, right? So the the adolescents, you know, people who spend almost all of their free time processing input from other minds, the heaviest phone users are young people. Their anxiety and anxiety-related disorders are off the charts. 
you know, demographers have never seen a jump from one generation to a next of any trait as big as they saw when we shifted from people who did not have smartphones during their adolescent years to people who did. They had never seen a jump that large on any trait. This is in large part because the brain cannot function properly. If you say no more solitude, every down moment, look at the phone, always be connected. You know, as soon as you wake up, stay up late at night doing this at every down moment while you're with friends, also be looking at the phone. And so this generation that has pushed this behavior to the extreme is getting the most extreme reaction. So I think even just educating people on the importance of solitude, that your brain has to have it just like it needs sleep and just like it needs water uh, and just like you need food. You have to have time alone with your own thoughts or lots of bad things are going to happen. Yeah. And even you, you mentioned in deep work that not being alone with your own thoughts and constantly single tasking, right? Because multitasking is a, a myth, but that actually permanently or not permanently, but that impacts your ability ever to actually dive deep with this, right? So this isn't an easy switch. So can you tell us as we do the detox, what are some other recommendations to make it make it stick? So when I studied the people who went through this sort of 30-day declutter process, try to understand why some succeeded and what, why some failed. Uh, the people who failed, there was a, a couple typical reasons. One is if they just treated the 30 days as a pure detox. So if they just said, yeah, I want to take a break and then I'll just go back to what I was doing before. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't work very well. They make it through maybe about a week. They're like, this is stupid. I just, uh, might as well just go back to these things now. There's very little lasting change. And, and so this notion of a temporary detox is not one that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, the whole notion of a detox is it's supposed to be the first step towards a radical reformation of how you live your life, not just a break. And so people who just said, hey, I'll, just, I'll just get a detox for 30 days, they often didn't stick with it for the full 30 days and were often back to, to where they were. The other group that had a lot of trouble were those that just tried to white knuckle the 30 days and say, you know, mm-hmm. I it just it, I'm going to not use these things and it's really hard. I'm just going to sort of sit with the hardness as opposed to what I recommend, which is aggressively and actively during that period, trying to figure out what you really want to do. So reflecting, experimenting, joining things, signing up for things, inviting people to do things, setting up standing dates for things, like really getting out there and really trying to experiment with what do I actually care about? What what actually do I find fulfillment for? So actually getting in touch with the value. So it's those who ended up saying, I really know what I value now. And all of these changes I'm making is to support those values they were able to sustain the changes. Those who instead just said, I don't know, I'm overwhelmed by all this stuff. So let me just walk away from it and just hope that makes things better. Mm. That often wasn't going to lead to a lasting change. Yeah. Otherwise there's just a vacuum, right? And if you don't replace that with the nourishing food, right? If right, you give up Snickers, you got to fill it with spinach and eventually right, you go back to eating that and you're like, this doesn't taste right anymore. Yeah. Otherwise it's just like a crash diet. You know, that doesn't work, right? So if you're if you're unhappy with with your physical health, well, you could do a crash diet and say, yeah, I'm just going to eat grapefruits, and you know, you are getting away from the bad food, and maybe you'll lose some weight, but it's it's completely unsustainable because you're starving, right? That doesn't work. But people who say, okay, I'm I'm, I'm unhealthy, but what I'm going to do is now I'm going to become vegan or paleo, or I'm going to completely rethink my philosophy of food and rebuild it from the ground up on what I think is valuable for me and my body. That can be a life a lifelong change. Um, I, I would love to ask about uh, your if you could give us a preview too of because it seems to kind of flow together uh, of the book you're currently writing around attention capital theory and what that what that's going to be about and if there's any like previews you can give us for that. Well, so I'm returning to the world of work and technology 
with this next book, which is currently tentatively titled A World Without Email. And uh, the, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone, everyone's ready for this, yeah, right? right. And, and, and so what's the what's the underlying message? So so essentially my argument is that we are pretty bad at knowledge work right now. Uh, and this shouldn't be surprising. So if you look back historically, whenever you have an intersection of new technology and commerce, it takes a while to figure out what's the right way to integrate this technology into commerce so that it that it's a big win. So, you know, it took us a long time to figure out after the advent of steam power and rail transport, it took us a while to figure out how to run factories. You know, it wasn't obvious. We had to invent a lot of theory. Like, what's the right way to build a car? Well, it turned out the answer was the assembly line, which is not at all obvious, you know. Um, completely unnatural is kind of a pain, but it just took us a while to figure it out. Well, this is where we are in knowledge work right now, so that we have these new technologies like digital networks and low-friction communication delivered through things like email and Slack. And so how are we working? How are we integrating these into commerce? Well, our initial attempt at doing this is something that's very sort of obvious, but also quite naive, which is we say, well, why don't we just have an ongoing unstructured conversation, right? If we all have an email inbox, now we can all reach each other and it's really easy to do. So we can just sort of let things unfold in back and forth messages, or maybe we'll have Slack so we can do it even faster, right? Let's just let these unfold in this sort of ongoing unstructured conversation. It's basically taking what you would do if there was three of you hunting a mastodon in Paleolithic time, which is you would just coordinate yourselves on the fly. And we're scaling it up the whole organizations because these tools make that possible. But it turns out that this is also a terrible way to produce value with your brain, because if you're going to have this ongoing unstructured conversation all day long, you have to service this ongoing unstructured conversation all day long, which means you have to constantly switch your attention back and forth from communication channels and the cognitive work. But we now know from modern psychology that every time you do one of these switch, there's a huge cognitive cost. It really reduces our ability to think hard. It also burns us out. It makes us miserable. There's also these social side effects of having so much communication out there. It overwhelms our social obligation circuit. So we've inadvertently stumbled into a way of working that is an incredible mismatch with the way our brains actually function. And so non-industrial productivity has been stagnant. People are miserable. People are having to work all of these hidden second shifts in the morning and the evening just to try to get things done. It's completely unsustainable. And so it's a long answer to a short question. But basically, the idea I'm exploring in this book is it's inevitable that we're going to move past this. The, the way we work where we're constantly sending and receiving emails or Slack messages is not fundamental. It's not synonymous with work in a high-tech age. It's just the first obvious thing we tried. And it's not working. We need more sophisticated ways of structuring our work in the knowledge sector, ways that actually take into account the way our brains function. Do you see solutions like that? Well, it's, you know, it's hard, right? Uh, so it there's not a lot of, let's say, large organizations that are doing anything different right now because it is difficult. And part of why it's difficult is that um, what we're trying first and what's not working is norms and hacks. And so when I talk to people in the C-suite, for example, they often think, well, if we could just get our norms around email better, mm. then we we're going to reach this productivity nirvana. Like we're almost there, right? <laughs> like this technology is going to make us super productive, but uh, it's not doing it now because our norms aren't quite right. But if we could all agree that, you know, we don't reply in the first four, two hours or something, or don't expect to reply right away, or don't send emails at night, if we just get the norms right, we're going to unlock all the power of these tools. And then people who are lower down uh, in the employment hierarchy think, well, if I just had the hacks right, if I just had the right system for checking my email or the right habit for how often I check my email. If I just get that the habits just right, then I'm going to unlock all the power and get rid of all the bad things to this technology. But these approaches aren't working because the underlying workflow depends on this ongoing unstructured conversation. 
And so until you change the underlying workflow by putting in place an explicit alternative, an alternative way for people to keep track of who's working on what, who needs what from who, how information moves between the people who need the information, like until you give an explicit alternative to this ongoing unstructured conversation, everything is going to devolve back to it. And that's why I think these approaches just to change norms or hacks keep failing. The, the core idea here is what I call attention capital theory, is that you can't just treat people like these unlimited capacity black boxes that you just feed information and incentives and then they just do stuff, right? They're brains. It's wetware. It's, it's like, here is a brain. This brain functions in a particular way. It, certain things it does well, certain things it does bad. It can only handle so much information. Certain things is going to burn it out. We have to confront the messy reality of how human brains work. We can't just say, I don't want to think about it, treat everyone like black boxes and just keep sort of stuffing stuff down people's throats, keeping this ongoing conversation going all day, just sort of closing our eyes to it because it's too complicated to figure out what to do instead. I mean, I know teachers, for example, I often hear um, really hate this transition that happened where, you know, now anyone can get their time and attention at any point through email and they're spending hours, you know, answering emails and they're thinking there's really nothing fundamentally about what I do as a teacher that changed 20 years ago to today. It seemed to be working fine. It's just that now that the technology is there, there's an expectation that everyone can grab your time and attention. That's what people are used to. It's not getting better outcomes in the classroom. It's burning out the teachers. It's not improving pedagogy. It's not helping the students. But just because the technology is there, we change the way that we behave. And so, I mean, teachers are certainly not immune to what happens when we, we sort of scale up this sort of what I call the hyperactive hive mind style workflow. Man. Yeah. And we're not black boxes a hundred percent. And one of the things you talked about, I think first in deep work is just the idea of the cognitive remnant of distractions. Can you talk to us about what you've seen with that? Well, this is the main reason why I think non-industrial productivity metrics have been stagnant over the last 10 years is that we now know from the last 10 to 15 years of psychology research that when you context switch, there's a cost that lingers. So if I'm working on something hard, like I'm writing a lesson plan, and I briefly switch my attention over to look at my email inbox, maybe just for a minute, right? Maybe I'm looking for a particular, you know, is there an urgent message? And then I bring my attention back to the original hard thing. There's a residue that's left from that switch that can last 10, 15, 20 minutes. And while that residue is in place, I can't think as well. My cognitive capacity is reduced. The duration of the context switch doesn't matter. It's the fact that you did the context switch in general, the overhead of actually doing the switch that has the cost. And so what's happening to a lot of people in the knowledge sector is that they, they think they're single tasking because they only have one window open at a time, but they're doing these quick checks every five or 10 minutes, right? Because you have to, if you work in a hyperactive hive mind type environment, I have to keep doing these quick checks of Slack, quick check of email. The result is they're in a constant self-imposed state of attention residue, which means that they're in this constant self-imposed state of reduced cognitive capacity. And so we're taking the number one resource in knowledge work, which is the ability of minds to think and produce value, and we're accidentally making, you know, diminishing its power. We're accidentally making ourselves much worse as thinking. It's like we're taking anti-neurotropic drugs that make us dumber and we don't realize it. And so I think that's one of the reasons, and this is, you know, we had no reason to suspect this would be true. I mean, there's not bad faith here, but this is one of the issues of moving towards this sort of always on conversation model is that it's just trashing our brain's ability to think hard. And it's because the context shifting turns out to be a big source of cost. Well, and that's why I would get home and my wife would say, what did you do today? And it was everything but nothing because it, I was checking every, you know, 
And so it took me five times as long to do a task that if I just deep worked it would have gotten done quicker. In addition to that, you talk about why we can't white knuckle it because willpower is a finite resource as well. Can you speak to that? Just Well, so something that you see common among people who are very adept at deep thinking and use that to great advantage is they often have these relatively elaborate rituals around sort of when they do the thinking and also where they do the thinking. And maybe they have a particular activity they do right before they start the thinking. And a big reason why they have these rituals is that they don't want to waste willpower on shifting their mind into a thinking mode. Um, you know, it's a big ask of a human brain to burn a lot of energy just thinking, right? From an evolutionary perspective, we're always trying to preserve energy if we don't need to expend it. Thinking uses a lot of energy. Um, and so it's a big ask to say, I want to just sit here and concentrate because, you know, our paleolithic mind doesn't recognize the importance of, hey, this lesson plan I need to write is actually pretty important because the Paleolithic mind says, I don't see a saber tooth tiger coming. I don't, you know, there's nothing in my immediate proximity uh, that is sounding alarm bells. So it, you know, it doesn't understand that's important. So it's hard work to try to convince your brain to say, to focus in on something and burn a lot of energy. Uh, it takes willpower. We only have so much. And so if you want to do this consistently, get the most out of your brain, you don't want to have to uh, white knuckle this transition into deep thinking every time it comes up. Right? So Having rituals about when you do it, where you do it, and what you do right before and right after you do the deep work, these type of rituals can really reduce the barrier of entry. Your brain gets used to it. It's like, yeah, this is what I do every morning at this time. I go to this part of my house. I have the cup of coffee. I clean off the desk. I know this means it's thinking time. I don't have to convince myself. I'll just slip into that mode. How can we use those principles for students in classrooms? Well, I mean, I think talking explicitly about thinking like a skill, like playing the guitar or, or knowing how to shoot a basketball or whatever, something that you have to practice, something you have to preserve, something that you want to deploy carefully. I think even just that vocabulary is very important. Um, I think talking about attention residue is really important in the classroom. I mean, you know, in, in my earlier books uh, about study skills, I talked about this. And I talked to students a lot about this now, which is saying, if you're trying to do any type of academic work, like any type of studying where you have like text message open, or you're checking email, or you're jumping back and forth between social media. It's like the equivalent of doing that with no sleep. It's the equivalent of doing that, you know, inebriated. It's the equivalent of taking some sort of drug that dumbs you down before you do your academic work. You're just making, uh, you're making yourself much worse at what you're doing. And so I often hammer that home with students that uninterrupted concentration is really the only defensible mode for trying to learn new information or, or produce new information. And, you know, Back when I was uh, used to speak a lot more about student advice, I used to tell parents of high school students, like, here's what you need to do. Here's how study time should work, right? Your student's going to say, I need the internet because I have to submit this thing online and there's some research I need to do on the internet. They always say the same things. <laughs> I have to have the internet because this class makes me submit something online. And there's some research I need to do. So you say, great, here's 30 minutes. Go do all the research you need online. Okay, now it's time for you to do the rest of your work. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your phone and then I'm going to take the power cable from the Wi-Fi router and I'm going to wrap it around the phone and I'm going to put that in my room and I'll give that back to you when you're done with your work. <laughs> and I used to always tell parents like, look, if you do this, you're going to cut down the time that your kids have to actually spend doing their schoolwork by like 75%. That's awesome. And it's because of the context switching cost, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, honestly like a teenager that's looking at SMS while they're working the equivalent for an adult would be like trying to work on something hard after having, you know, a, a quarter of a handle of scotch mm -hmm. or something like that, right? Like you can kind of think 
but way worse than if you were just coming at it sober. Wow. And that's why my Friday morning meetings are so rough. <laughs> because of the quarter handle of the scotch. scotch. <laughs> By the time yeah, you get the Friday, yeah, it's a exactly. scotch day. Kel, you have been so generous with your time. And I, I wonder if we could just push you for one more um, one more topic. I The way that you talk about um, students and passion and how we always push people to you know identify their passion and, and mm-hmm. uh, your op-eds about why that, that that's a harmful thing to do to people. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I see it happening all over the place. Right. Well, I mean, as long as I'm being controversial, we might as well cover yeah, my bases. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, definitely. Maybe we can just, Passion does not matter. Maybe we can discuss politics after awesome. this or something. Right? I love it. <laughs> um, yep. So, so I, I, yeah, so I published this book in 2012 called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And basically the premise is follow your passion is bad advice. And more specifically, telling a young person to follow their passion will probably reduce the probability that they end up passionate about their work. And so that was that was sort of the contrarian headline. The subtext below that headline is, hey, if you study people who love their work, you find that nine times out of 10, it's not about matching a pre-existing interest to their job. I mean, this is a story we tell young people. You're for whatever reason, some for some reason you're wired fundamentally to do one thing. Somehow your genes know about the current 21st century knowledge economy. They know the jobs that are available and you're wired to do one thing. And if you match it, if you match your job to this thing you're wired to do, you'll love it. If you don't match it, you're going to be miserable. That's the story we tell kids. That's the follow your passion story. And I think it's it's completely unsupported by the research literature. It's completely unsupported by most people's experience. And it leads a lot of young people to just be sort of completely anxious and miserable and unhappy and worried about their jobs. The reality is nine out of 10 people who love their work, it was not about the initial match so much as it was that they got really good at something that was valuable. And then they used those skills as leverage to shape their career towards things that resonate in a way towards uh, things that don't. And over time, using skill, hard won skill as their primary currency, they're able to invest into their career and transform it into something that's incredibly meaningful. The passion tends to grow along with competence. It, it doesn't go... Uh, the other way around. That's not to say that you know any job will make you happy, and you can just throw a dart, you know, at the job listings and, and do whatever's there. I mean, you you want to choose something that that well matches, uh, that does match interest, that seems like it has a lot of interesting options if you do well in it. But I'm really lowering the threshold. There's not one perfect job out there for you. There's probably thirty that would be fine and could be a source of passion. What's less, more important than than obsessing over the choice is picking something reasonable. And then putting your head down and saying, how do I become so good I can't be ignored as quickly as possible? Nine times out of 10, that's the foundation on which true passion is built. It, it seems like a much better uh, route to take than, I mean, the way that I did it, which is just switching careers every three to five years because, you know, you haven't found the right thing yet. I mean, that's, yeah, it makes yeah. all the sense in the world. Well, my generation was sort of devastated by this. So if if you go back, you know, I'm 35, so I'm like an old millennial. But if you go back and study the etymology of this phrase, follow your passion, it's really new. I mean, we think of it as fundamental, but you don't actually see follow your passion showing up commonly in the printed English language until really the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s, early 2000s. So like essentially the millennials were the first generation that were truly raised with this notion being ubiquitous. And this is why we had to invent the phrase quarter life crisis. <laughs> because it, if you tell someone like it's all about the match, well, what happens when, hey, you're in an entry, the entry level of your career and you don't love what you're doing every day because, hey, it's just hard and hard work is not always that fun. What happens? You say, well, this must not be the right job. I must have got the match wrong. So I better switch. And then you switch to another job and you're like, oh, 
you know, I'm not loving it today. This is hard and, and I'm not, you know, in charge. I'm not doing really impactful creative work because, hey, the reality is you're 22 and you haven't built the skills yet to do that, but you think this must be the wrong match. I should be loving this every day. So let me try something else. And so it created this sort of uh, existential despair and chronic job hopping that essentially delayed people um, from getting the true passion, which takes some time and usually requires you first really getting good at things. Hmm. We'll let you run on this. Where can our listeners go to learn more from and with you since you are not on social media? Uh, right. So I, I don't have social media, um, but I do have a website, calnewport.com. I'm a big fan of blogging. I think it, it does right what social media gets wrong. So I have a decade's worth of blog posts that start with years of posting on student issues. And then moving on to these issues about passion we talked about, and then moving on from there to deep work and digital minimalism. So if any of these issues seem interesting to you, you can find more than enough of my writing on it at calnewport.com. So Ben, what are your what are some of your biggest takeaways from that interview with the giant Cal Newport? Yeah, Becky, my my biggest takeaway is definitely I want to use technology intentionally. And I know there are some incredible, powerful things with technology that I have nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters thousands of miles away. And through FaceTime, I can talk to them and my nieces and nephews know my face and my voice. And there's nothing like that. That's such a a positive. But the other day, I had just gotten back from the park with my own physical children. And I was sitting on the couch and my daughter was asking me a question and I was texting somebody. And she's like, Dad, are you listening to me? And I was like, yeah. She's like, Dad, can you use a voice like you did at the park so I know you're listening to me? And so even my daughter can pick up when I'm not fully present with her and I'm just being distracted by my technology. So I think my biggest uh, takeaway from Cal Newport's his book was that I, I deleted Facebook off my phone. I deleted Twitter off my phone. I'm batching those things. And um, yeah, my time on my cell phone is, has dropped considerably. And I hope I'm being more intentional in my tech use. How about you, Becky? Well, I... I don't know. I all of that stuff obviously. I mean, I think that um there are a lot of things from this episode and the book that are going to stick with me like especially that the intentionality behind the use of technology. I just need to be really a lot clearer about why I'm using the apps that I am and what purpose they're serving and if they're the best way for me to get to those purposes or those values. And I actually think it pairs really well with what we talked to Stephen Shedletsky about not that long ago like if you're clear about your values and your and your how and your what, that um, if you're not clear about those things, that stress can kind of creep in and take a dangerous hold on different aspects of your life. And I think technology is the same way. So as teachers, we have a huge responsibility to play um, and a huge role to play in students' healthy and intentional use of the technology that's at their fingertips all the time. But I also really liked um, at the end when he started talking about his book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, I, I feel like... Um, we talk to students still a lot about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your passion? Follow your passion, things like that. And it's it's super interesting. There's a lot out there around why that's not the best advice and how you can end up really loving things that you get really good at, even if it's not what you set your mind to do in the beginning. I actually was just listening the other day to a podcast um, called Work Life with organizational psychologist Adam Grant. It's awesome. If you haven't checked it out yet, I'll link it in show notes. But um, he had a woman on who was like getting her psychology P. PhD and was studying decision making. So she learned how to play poker and made like $200,000 in a year and like loved playing poker. And so she's still getting her PhD, but she never would have found that if she was just like a quote unquote following what her one passion was in life. I just think it's, you know, kind of a disservice that we're doing to people um, by narrowing them into that one specific thing. So 
we hope that you guys had some good takeaways from this one too. Please share those with us at brainwaves.com or on Twitter at hashtag make some brainwaves. And as always, have a great generic time of day.